0: Father, you are good to us, always good, Lord. Uh, the scriptures are clear about your character, and we expect, like, uh, like, Tozer said, that all the attributes of God are on, are are for us in Christ. <laughs> so we thank you for that and pray, Lord God, that you would be exalted in our drawing near to you as we look at the text of Scripture and find out how to address this uh, this prevalent. Um, cultural issue that, Lord, has always uh, been there. But, Lord, we're just re-terming it, it seems, these days. So we can address it with Scripture and helping people to see things your way instead of trusting their hearts and trusting the, uh, the direction of our broken world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, how many people have heard the terminology expressive individualism? Have you heard that? Is that new to some? Okay. Um, expressive individualism is what I, I want to talk this entire time about how we're going to, we're going to expose it, talk about what it is. We're going to, uh, address it with scripture and give hope. But, um, it's been talked about a lot, uh, in the Christian world, um, because of a book that was written. It's actually in the bookstore. If you go, I think there's like two copies left, uh, the rise and triumph of the modern self by Carl Truman. He is, is basically answering the question, how do we get to a point in our society where, um, someone can say, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body and it's completely accepted and celebrated. How do we get to this point? And, um, he said, if you were to have told my grandfather that he would, he would look at you and say, I I don't understand. Like, I, I, what, what are you saying? He would not have understood. So, so we've got, you know, two generations down the road, and we we're here. What do we do with that? And he he addresses how we got there uh, in this book, and uh, it's a big tome. It's <laughs> it's kind of dense. It's uh, 400 pages, but uh, he just they just released a an abridged version. that's probably like half the size of that. If you're interested, it came out this year called Strange New World. Same content, but it's uh, going to be an easier read. And so, Strange New World, Carl Truman is the author. Well, um, I think this is illustrated, this idea of expressive individualism, expressive individualism is illustrated by a, a, a survey I saw uh, a video of a few years ago. It was 2016. It was put out by the Family Policy Institute of Washington. And uh, in the video, a five foot nine white man interviews students at the University of Washington and asks them, what would you say if I told you, first question was, if I told you that I am a woman? And he was interviewing these different students, and um, I said, well, I mean, I'd say, yeah, good for you. Um, And and there wasn't, no one was willing to say that, he was wrong. Like, okay, well then if that's what works for you, you know, very postmodern way of thinking, if that's good for you. Then uh, all the power to you. It was that kind of answer. But then he went on. He said, what if I told you I was com- completely different ethnicity? And they were saying, okay, well, uh, you know, again, if that's what you want, um, I, I might have a question about that, but you know, it's good for you. And he went on. He said, what if I told you that I'm I am seven years old and I would like to enroll in a first grade class. They were like, well, again, I'd want to know more about that, but if that's the way you want to identify, you know, and it it doesn't really bother me. That's what you'd hear. It doesn't really bother me. And then he finally said, what if I told you, I mean, he's five, he's five foot nine. What if I told you I'm six foot five? And they, again, they, no one would tell him he was wrong. Like he even asked them straight up, am I wrong? And they, no one would say you're wrong. They said, ah, at most they would lightly questioned him, but no one would commit to the wrongness of his statement. And this was six years ago, the University of Washington. Expressive individualism. That illustrates what it is, but how do we define it now? As we move forward, I'm going to point to Carl Truman on this. He says, expressive individualism declares in order to be fulfilled, in order to be an authentic person, in order to be genuinely me, I need to be able to express outwardly that which I feel I am inside. That's really the heart of this issue. But he goes on to say this. The expressive individual is the sovereign individual. All other relationships are subordinate to the personal needs and feelings of me as an individual. I am the sovereign arbiter of what is good for me. And let's just be honest. This is good old-fashioned pride, right? Right? It's, it's pride. It's, and, and I say good old fashioned. Of course, it's not good. It's evil. Christ had to die for this. We deserve hell for this. There are seven things that God hates, right? And a haughty spirit's one of them. It's a self focus, self assessment, self glorification. That's what this is. There is a, it's interesting. Another illustration of this in society was, was brought to light with a, a new Pixar movie that came out uh, this year. Um, called Turning Red, and they put it on Disney Plus, And um, for World Radio, um, there was a reviewer, Colin Garbarino, wrote a review of Turning Red, and he he uh, pointed out a contrast between this movie and um, one that came out about ten years ago called Brave. I don't know if you saw Brave, um, Pixar movie, it takes place in Scotland. And he he said he said this about uh, the two movies and how they contrast. With one another, he said. Turning red is reminiscent of Pixar's Brave, which came out ten years ago. Both movies feature strong-willed mothers and daughters who don't meet each other's expectations, and both movies feature family members who transform into bears. It's true, but Brave is a more truthful movie. The heroine tries to follow her heart, but brings devastation. In the end, she says that she's sorry. Right. It was, the movie portrays um, Merida in that movie um, as wrong for what she did. She followed her heart. There was there was all kinds of trouble as a result of her following her heart. And the the way that the movie is, um, you know, can the moral of the story leads you to the conclusion: this was not a good thing. She what she did was wrong, and she has to make amends in the end of the movie. Not so with Turning Red, right? Um, the if you could call her heroine, the main character. She ends up destroying the the city of Toronto. But in the end, though she was following her heart and she was leaving destruction in her wake, everybody admits that she was right for following her heart and expressing herself and bringing the inside to the outside. Right? Garberino says, Turning Red teaches kids that you can do whatever you want. As long as you stay true to yourself, true to who you are, and the good news, according to Pixar, is that you're free to decide who that's going to be. The rest of us, it's our job to affirm you and your decisions so that's that's just just ten years in a message put out by um, a secular company, right uh, something that seemed that we could that consists with morality and brave but one that is, flies in the face of everything that's good with this newer movie that just came out this year. It's a, it's a telling movie of the age. Well, I think that the person uh, called Diotrephes in John 3 is a good description of what we're dealing with. I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. Um, he's, he would fit well into this category of expressive individualism, I imagine, in our day. <clears throat> so what are the dangers associated with this idea of expressive individualism? Well, first, the claim of expressive individualism is this. Self defines identity. Self protects that identity and self promotes that identity. Now I was going back over my notes and I would add something to that. Self demands others celebrate that identity. When taken to seed, that's what you get to, right? You demand other people affirm and celebrate your identity that you've determined that you have, you've decided it. Remember the, the, the expressive individual is the sovereign individual. What is this? Why is this a problem? Well, first of all, it's a defiant rejection of God, who is the ultimate authority, who made us and gave us our identity as his image bearers, Genesis 127. God decides who we are, right? He made us. He decided that we were his image bearers. Male and female, he created us as image bearers. And as image bearers, like we've talked about before, I think we talked about this last month, um, we are created to show the world what God is like, to reflect Him in this world. That's who we are. That's that's uh, at the core of our identity. God's image bearers to reflect and to show who He is in this world. So we don't get to say who we are. God does because He is Creator. This is also a defiant rejection of Christ, since He died so that we would live our lives for Him and not ourselves. Second Corinthians five fifteen is a wonderful verse, right? and He died for all, that those who live would no longer live for themselves, but for Him who, for their sake, died and was raised. We we were saved so that we would end a self centered life. That we would turn from self-focus and self-assessment and, and self-promotion to christ promotion, right? Trusting Him, obeying Him, seeking Him, following Him. Not our own hearts. He died that we would die to self, right? And live righteous lives for Him. Pointing to Him and following Him. This is also a defiant rejection of the call of discipleship. Luke nine twenty three, right, it says that, you know, Christ says, "Whoever would come to me must take up his cross and deny himself daily." All right? If you're going to follow Christ, then you have to deny yourself. You you can't follow yourself and follow Christ. You've got to deny yourself if you're going to follow Christ. He's clear about that. Take up your cross. Make whatever sacrifice you have to make in order to be faithful to Jesus as you follow him. Turn from yourself to Jesus. That is the direction. That is the the focus of the gospel and the Christian life. Why else is expressive individualism a problem? Why is it dangerous? Taking expressive individualism to seed moves toward chaos not unity. There's this great clip that I saw uh, that Denny Burke posted on his um, website recently. Uh, It was Martin Lloyd-Jones being interviewed by the BBC in 1970. And um, really the interviewer was um, talking about expressive individualism without using that terminology. This idea of self-expression, self-actualization, using that kind of terminology, asked him what he thought about this, and here's the answer that he gave. He says, the more man expresses himself, the worse things become. (laughs) If each man is autonomous and is to express himself or herself, you're bound to get conflict, aren't you? If each one of us is a God, and I determine I do what I think is right, and you think differently, there's a clash immediately. We must, both of us, submit ourselves to God. We have an authority outside ourselves. That's important, right? You you believe that you're autonomous, and you get to call the shots for your own life. If I think the same thing about me, that I get to call the shots for my life, and I've got to express myself outwardly, well, what if... It's a direct contradiction to what you think about yourself. All of a sudden, you don't have harmony. You don't have unity. You've got a lot of butting heads. You've got violence. You've got chaos. There's no unity. You cannot get to unity that way. It's antithetical to unity. It leads to chaos. What leads to unity is people saying, I'm going to submit myself to God, my creator in Christ And I believe that he is my authority and you believe he's your authority and you believe he's your authority and we all submit to him. That's the only way you get unity. Look with me at Ephesians 4. There's this statement that Paul uses kind of in, in passing, but it's important to how we understand what true unity is and where it comes from. Ephesians 4, we'll start in verse 11. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Listen, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. And he goes on from there. But that that terminology, the the unity of the faith, what does that mean? The faith there, when he says the the faith, he means the body of doctrine that makes up Christianity, right? The the body of teaching that makes up Christianity, the, the pillars of the gospel, right? The good deposit. Those teachings, that's what he's talking about. And so unity can only actually happen when you've got people who are all believing and submitting to God based on these teachings, the faith. And that terminology is used throughout the New Testament, speaking of the faith, that body of teaching that that makes up Christianity and what we must believe. So it leads from, expressive individualism, that is, leads... um, from unity to chaos. Dangers. Expressive individualism has no regard for the moral nature of what is being expressed. If it is felt, then it should be expressed. You feel it? Let it out. Right? We memorized a scripture verse recently as a church, right? It says, The fool gives full vent to his spirit, right? But the wise person quietly holds it back, right? From the Proverbs. You don't give full vent to what's inside because we understand that, that in our hearts, even, even as redeemed individuals, even those who have a new heart and have the spirit indwelling us, the presence of sin is still there, right? So just because it's in you doesn't mean it should be outside being expressed in your life. There are some things that you need to quietly hold back and repent of on the inside. So, what does this defy? Well, it denies the morally sick nature of the heart without Christ, right? Jeremiah 17 9. It's desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart. Desperately sick and for the presence uh, of sin that still resides within us turn to galatians chapter 5 right for believers we need to re- reconcile with this reality there's there's a war going on inside us that's what paul's very clear about in galatians 5:17 for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. We have to square with that so that we understand that just because it's on the inside, doesn't mean we should be expressing it on the outside. Expressive individualism has no regard for the harmful effects of what is being expressed. Doesn't matter who you hurt. Right? Doesn't matter who you step on, doesn't matter who gets knocked, as long as you can be your authentic self, as long as you can be genuinely me, then all all kinds of hurt and all kinds of um, offense can be given because, again, your purpose in life, according to these teachings is that you have fulfillment. And fulfillment is you expressing yourself on the inside, following your desires. So it gives no regard to the fact that other people are going to be stepped on along the way. But look at Matthew chapter 22. With me for a moment. 22, we'll look at 34 through 40. when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Loving your neighbor as yourself. I mean, that was, um, that, that's, that was proclaimed in secular, uh, secular organizations and schools when I was growing up, right? But now it's the opposite of that. E- even even uh, the secular world got that you should treat others the way you want to be treated. But all of a sudden now, if you're loving people, well, that can't, that can't consist with or gel with the fact that you're supposed to let your inside out, right? Your desires are to be expressed outwardly. It doesn't matter who gets hurt. That's not love. Love is, when you're loving, you're thinking of somebody as more important than yourself, right? You're valuing them. You're seeking their good above your own. And so you're in contradiction to the second great commandment. And the call to consider others is more important than yourselves, which comes right out of Philippians chapter two, right? If you're gonna be like Christ then consider yourselves more significant than yourselves because that's what he did when he came from heaven to earth to the cross other dangers because feelings are the ultimate authority in expressive individualism everyone who questions or confronts the expression becomes an enemy you you tell me I'm wrong you tell me that this is not right for me I cancel you right to use some terminology of our day, Get you out of my life. Here's, here's another word that's being thrown around a lot. People toxic, right? Brothers and sisters that, that I've heard that used a lot from people. If, If somebody has disagreed or said something that is, is, uh, difficult to hear, it's very easy to say that person is toxic. You cut that person out of your life, right? Just because they disagreed or they said something that was hard for you to hear or uh, they didn't affirm something that was wrong in your life doesn't mean that they're toxic, right? Um, What happened to, when it comes to Christians, loving reproof, right? The wise person loves reproof, Proverbs 9, 8. Loves correction, but it's, it's the foolish person who rejects it and just becomes automatically defensive and throws up a wall. But you're an enemy if you do what I don't want you to do or say what I don't want you to say, or if you don't celebrate, affirm, and agree with me. Um, Here's something else that goes along with that. The expressive individual turns away from anything that suggests disagreement. Now, this is important. Online life becomes a welcomed haven since it allows easy cancellation of all who might oppose. So it's very easy to live online. Because um, if you have to cancel people, there's not a whole lot of fallout from canceling people online. You can um, you can tailor your audience you can tailor your friend group very easily find people all over the world all over the nation that agree with you and affirm you and stay right there and have uh, have a place where no one opposes you because you've you've got them out of your friend list right you don't want that's toxic i gotta get that out because if that's not helping me um, toward fulfillment and self-actualization listen to what samuel d james says regarding this Theologically, the ability to curate our reality cripples our capacity to follow the Bible's commands to live counterintuitively. We're taught to love our enemies, to submit to those in authority, to deny our sinful instincts, to receive a faithful rebuke, to confess our sins, and perhaps hardest of all, to forgive those who sin against us. To follow any of these biblical commands is to concede pride of place in our own story. And the first person, highly curated, totally customized experience of online life is simply not compatible with this. What he means is, if you look at the commandments of scripture, all these hard things we're called to do, living counterintuitively, all these commands that we're called to that require self-denial. Well, if you just live online and you, you put yourself in a place where no one's going to disagree with you, then, then really you have no encouragement to live the way you're called to live as a Christian, right? Because everyone's just going to keep clapping their hands as you go away from God further and further. Instead of having people in your life that are not just yes men, but say, no, I, I love you too much to let you say that or to believe that. I love you too much to see you go in that direction. Please hear me out. Come, I'm I'm not here to, um, to hate you. I'm here to love you because I know it's best for you because God has said it, not because I have, because the God who made you knows what's best. And I just want to remind you of this because you've forgotten it and you're rejecting it. That's important. So this is this idea of expressioning, you know, kind of curating your own reality online. This is a denial of God's good gift of exhortation and correction. Look look at this uh, to the contrary in Hebrews chapter 3. 12 and 13. Take care brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day. That's frequency, right? As long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You've got to be exhorting one another. You've got to be encouraging one another toward godliness because there's such a thing as sin and you can become hardened by it. You can become hardened by its deception inside your heart. So we need each other. The the church needs one another to obey the one another commandments of scripture, which call for exhortation, rebuke, and correction. And so if you cut those people out of your life, then you can't have that blessing and that benefit. It's a good gift from God. Whenever we're doing this, when we're, we're around each other and you've got someone who comes alongside and says, I... I don't think the scriptures agree with that. Let's talk. That's a blessing because, um, again, just like disciplining our children, right? If you've had children, if you've got grandchildren or friends with with children, we we discipline our children because we understand that their their path, if they keep on this path toward something that's dangerous and harmful for them, then um, that's going to be even worse for them as they get into adulthood and they start to have those habits characterize them more and more. And they're outside of your house, and they're outside of that protection. Then later on, right? So you discipline them so that they can come back and see that this is actually best for you. You do what you think right now. Even though I, I know you want to run with that knife right now. I know, I know that that looks really fun. Okay, you've you've watched movies, and it looks like a sword to you, and so you want to run outside with that big butcher knife. But I'm not going to let you do that because I know things that you don't know, and I love you more than you realize. So. There's going to be a correction, right? And if you, if you defy the authority given to you, then I'm going to discipline you and bring you back so that you don't endanger yourself, right? So that's what you're simply doing in a different kind of way and then one another commandments. I'm not saying you, you're disciplining necessarily another individual, but that's what church discipline's for, right? You get to that place and that's why you ratchet up the pressure from Matthew 18. You ratchet up the pressure of, um, you know, if one person goes and is re- uh, rejected, there's no repentance, you bring somebody else with you and then you let it, the church um, know about it and then you treat them like a tax collector, right? After that as an unbeliever. Why all that pressure? It sounds mean, doesn't it? It's not mean. I've seen, it, I've seen God's ways work to bring people back to fellowship with the Lord and fellowship with the saints because that's what's best for them, whether they realize it or not. We don't get to decide that. God gets to decide what's best for us. What are problems resulting from expressive individualism that we need to be prepared for? Prepared to address in, in counseling situations. Spouses who are calling it quits on their marriage because they've been denying their feelings for too long. This is... Right now, there's a lot of this going on. I think that people have felt empowered by some of the stuff that's been going on in our culture in the last couple of years. Expressive individualism has, uh, has shown itself uh, more obviously and clearly, I think, in some aspects. And so I've uh, personally, as a pastor, heard of this um, more than and I care to hear about it, honestly. Um, it's, it's sad because someone feels a certain way. Like well, I'm, I can. I need to follow my feelings. I need to have fulfillment. God, and even using God, even using God and saying God wants me to be happy. And so I, I there's a, a dear sister that I know that told me that very thing. That that's what her husband said to her when he left her. God wants me to be happy, and this is going to make me happy. And calls, and this man calls himself a Christian. So that's you get to this end by people. Um, believing that fulfillment comes from expressing outwardly what you feel on the inside. Embracing homosexuality and transgenderism, right? That's, that's how you get to a place uh, where someone says, I, I am a, a woman trapped in a man's body and people accept that because they feel a certain way and they must express it outwardly or else um, it's, they can't truly have fulfillment. But you know what the, the danger of is with a relationship to this? the fact that there is a, an online community of people who have um, transitioned to the other gender, which you can't really do, right? But they've transitioned, and now they're detransitioning. transitioning there's, there's a whole, uh, I, I think it was Denny Burke who said this, um, there's a whole a community on TikTok giving their detransitioning transitioning stories about it was not what I thought it was going to be. Uh, they lied to me. It's I have, I'm not fulfilled. My life is worse as a result of it because they followed their hearts. And of course they go against God's design. And so there's not going to be anything that's going to be better for them. I remember hearing an, an interview with, um, uh, Andre Sue Peterson for world magazine. Uh, it's been a few years ago, but she, she went and attended just, she wanted to, to, to be an observer. She, uh, observed an, a transgender, um, like a conference in Philadelphia and she was there and just wanted to see what was going on. She described how how hopeless the people looked and she and how gaunt they looked and like this is not a place where you'd expect that uh, happy people were existing right And so that, that's what happens when we trust our hearts that's the consequences about parents neglecting their children to pursue self-actualization right and kids and their good are put in the back seat on the back burner. Because a parent has to um, get what they feel like is going to lead them to being genuinely me. Professing Christians quiet quitting the church. Have you heard that terminology? It's been used lately. Quiet quitting, where um, you, you don't just go out like and uh, you know you yell at somebody on the way out, or you're angry on the way out, and you have an angry meeting with the elders on the way out. It's it's just like more increasingly go every once in a while. You know you kind. Stop tithing. You stop, uh, you know, uh, having contact with any other people in the church, and it's just it's it's quietly quitting something. And this ha- that's that's a much easier way to quit the church, honestly, than, than going out and having a, a mature conversation with somebody and saying I'm going to switch churches. But but this is just quitting the church entirely. Like I'm I'm out of church so that I can per- pursue fulfillment in other things besides church. This that that's pretty common. Increasingly trading real relationships for an online life that creates an echo chamber of affirmation. So what do we do with this? Where's the hope, right? It's a lot of... So what do we do with this in terms of biblical remedies? The biblical remedies for expressive individualism. How we, what are we going to do when someone's in our office talking about some of these, these, uh, issues or you're, you're at coffee or you're in your house. So I'm not saying it has to be an office, right? I have an office. So I'm thinking of my office, right? I mean, anywhere where you're giving counsel, right? What do you do? What do you say when people are, are saying the kinds of things that we've already been rehearsing here this morning? Let's first of all, be clear about who God is and who we are in relationship to him. Do some of this uh, heavy work because we want to jump too quickly to application, don't we? We're going to jump to application, but you've got to establish application on doctrine, on the truths of God, who he is and what he's done for us in Christ. So spend time on this. Who is God in the first place, right? Um, who are we in relationship to God? Let's, let's walk through some of these, these aspects of who God is. God is creator. He's creator of everything and everyone. Therefore he is owner of everything and everyone. Right, that's we, we see that in Psalm twenty-four, verses one and two. It's kind of uh, the ESV kind of uses this poetic language, but you'll get the sense of it. I think Psalm twenty-four, one and two: the earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. He's saying that the world and everything in it belongs to God because he's created it. That's what he's saying. Because he's creator, he gets to say what is right and good and true. He gets to say what our purpose is for life because he created us, right? Um, if you have, let's, let's say you painted this, okay? Okay perfect. Okay. Let's say you painted this. You get to decide what to do with it, right? You decide what, what to do with this. If you're going to sell it, you're going to give it away to a friend, right? You're going to hang it in your house. You get to decide because you created it, right? God created us. He gets to decide what we're for, right? What's our purpose? What is the, the whole reason why we exist? He gets to decide. And by the way, his decision is not only right, but it's best. Right? It's right and best for us. What else? What else we need to help them square with? God is creator. He's owner of everything. He's ultimate authority. Feelings aren't, therefore, ultimate authority. He is. Because Christians have been bought with the price of Jesus' blood, we are not our own. The truth should constrain us, to live for God instead of self. We see this in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 with regard to the body, right? 1 Corinthians 6. Actually, we'll go into verse 18 because that kind of gets the beginning of the thought. He's given a command and then he's going to base this command on a gospel reality. So 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin is a uh, sin. A person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy spirit within you, whom you have from God, you are not your own for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body, flee sexual immorality. Don't use your body to pursue that goal. Because the Holy Spirit is within you, first of all, and that's a gospel reality, and you've been bought with a price, the highest price, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That's the price you've been bought with, and therefore you don't belong to yourself. You belong to him. So then let that propel you into glorifying God with your body instead of doing what you feel like you ought to do. right, so... Helping them to see that the idea of ownership is a good thing when it comes to the gospel. In, in, our, in our world, that's that's like a curse word. Like someone else owns me, right? That I belong to him. What are you talking about? I am my own person. I do what I want. No, 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 no. There's no one you would want. To, if you really understand things rightly and you see them as they are, you see them from God's perspective, there's no one we'd rather want to belong to than God. Because he's not going to call us to anything that's bad for us, right? He doesn't call us to anything that's, that's that's poisonous for us, but only to that which is good for us. So we can trust him. So the idea of belonging in the gospel is important to help people square with so that they see that, oh, oh, I if I call myself a Christian, then I don't get to just do whatever I want to do, right? Paul, I think it's in chapter five of Galatians where he talks about don't don't use your freedom in Christ. As an occasion for the flesh, but then he says, "But in kindness, love one another." Right? I think it's in uh, Galatians five thirteen. So, in other words, don't don't just say, "Oh, I'm free in Christ; I can do what I want to." Rather, you ought to be submitting yourself to God and then loving other people with your freedom in Christ. The right? book remedies helping them understand who God is and who we are in relationship to Him. God is good. Right. So we know we can trust him when it, when he calls us away from expressive individualism to a life of representing him. That's good. Right. Um, in Psalm 119 verse 68, it's that text where, where the psalmist says, God, you are good and you do good. Right. You are that you just do good things. You, you, you are innately good. You are good through and through, and you do that which is good. And so if he is good, then we can trust him. We don't have to doubt that what he's calling, to, uh, calling us to is, is bad for us in any way. It's not. Just because something is hard and just because something hurts doesn't mean it's bad, right? We, we tend to think suffering, hurt, pain, this is not easy. That must be bad. That's not the way God thinks because he knows that we need to die to ourselves, and we, it's, it's a, sometimes a painful process to become more like Christ which is the best thing for us. And and by the way, even though we know that Jesus was a man of sorrows, right? the sorrows that he was carrying were our sorrows, right? That's why he was a man of sorrows. But if we understand the person of Christ correctly and the fact that he never, ever sinned, he's the most joyful human being that ever lived, right? So you become more like Christ, you become more like that as you do so. God is not a cosmic killjoy in the prohibitions he gives us. He is always seeking our best through the self-denying commands of his word. Look with me at Psalm 119, starting in verse 161. Psalmist writes, Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. Love that. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. Great peace. Have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. I love that because he he's saying, um, I praise you seven times a day for your righteous rules. You're telling me what to do. You're telling me how to live. And it, you know, it goes against our hearts when he does so. And yet we're saying, I praise you for that, right? In a world where we don't like to be told what to do. When God says, do this, not this. And he gives prohibitions and he says, here's my law. It is good and perfect and right. And we say, no, I want things my way. That's an abomination. But to say, oh God, I know, you know, it's best for me. You made me in your image to reflect you and to show the world what you are like. I trust you. I love your laws, your rules. Please tell me what to do because I know you love me because you sent your son to save me. That is the most joyful act in all of history and all the universe. And because of that, I know I can trust you for everything else in life. So tell me, command me, call me to yourself and to bow the knee to you. I heard John stone street say this, uh, Cause he was talking about prohibitions and how people think that God is a cosmic killjoy. You know, he's telling us what to do with our bodies and with our sexuality and ta- why we should deny ourselves in these ways. Um, like we're just a bunch of ascetics are always punishing ourselves, uh, for God. He said, no, no, no. God, w- whenever he gives us a prohibition here, he's upholding something else somewhere else, right? So he's telling us no and he's saying yes to something else as he's telling us no. So yes, no to this form of sexuality. Yes to this form. And it's because he wants to bless us, he knows what's best for us. So he's pointing us to that channel of doing things his way for his glory that is absolutely joyful and peaceful for him, uh, for us as we, as we glorify him, right? So as he prohibits us, he's actually upholding his way and we need to turn to his way and trust that it is best and right. What else can we be clear about with people who are struggling with these ideas? Be clear about the call of coming to Christ and following Him devotedly. Turn with me to Luke 9. We already talked about verse 23 in Luke 9, but 24 comes right after it. I mean, he says in 23 that we are to deny ourselves and take up our cross to follow Christ. But in verse 24, he says this For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. This is helpful. It's the, the upside down way of the scriptures. But really, it's right side up because we're the upside down way, you know, in the way we think, fleshly, right? So he's saying that if you want to find true life in Christ, then you've got to give up life on your terms. Lose your life on your terms. When you say, I want my life to be this way because that's what I want and that's what I desire. Lay that down, lose that life so that you can find true life, eternal life in Christ. Give up life on your terms to find it in Christ on his terms. Right, finding true life means giving up our life on our terms and surrendering to Christ and saying, "You are the one who gets to tell me what to do. And you know what's best for me. You're my authority." So we've got to be clear uh, about the call of coming to Christ. Right? Think, think about uh, the rich young ruler. Jesus tells him, "One thing you still lack. Go and sell all that you own and give to the poor, and then come and follow me." Why does he say that? Not, it's not because you earn your way to Christ that you've got to go and, and do these things to, to earn merit with God. That's not what he's saying that. He's saying that because he understands something about the rich young ruler's heart. He understands there's, there's an idol there that he's not willing to give up. So if we're going to come to Christ, we have to be willing to forsake our idols. Paul even says that in 1 Corinthians uh I'm sorry, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, where he says, uh, he's talking to them, he says, I, I've heard about your faith. You've turned from idols to serve the living and true God. That's the way you come to Christ, by laying down your idols and coming to him, right? Forsaking life on your terms to find it in him. It's very clear when it comes to the me-centeredness, the the, the idea that self-decides and defines identity, that self-protects that identity and self-promotes that identity. No, that doesn't square with anything because God defines our identity, doesn't He? Right, and He wants us to promote Him and not ourselves in our life for Him. We also need to be clear about the new identity we've been given in Christ. The new identity. Second Corinthians five seventeen. Right, whoever's in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone; the new has come. Paul says. But what, what are some aspects of this new identity that we need to square with and help our counselees see this is who you are. If you're in Christ, this is who you are, period. Look with me at Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, 4 through 7. Who are we? Because God gets to decide that. We don't decide that. First Peter chapter one, he, he calls us to be obedient children and so be holy as he is holy, right? So if you're going to be, if you're going to be children, you have to be obedient children, right? You belong to God. You're in his family. You have a new name. You have these privileges that come along with being in Christ as an adopted child of God. And now he's going to call you to a life of obedient uh, childlike faith, right? Be an obedient child to him in your new identity, right? Your sons and daughters, And we're also citizens of heaven, right? Paul says that in Philippians 3.20, citizens of heaven. We've got to ask ourselves, and being citizens of heaven, are we living according to the values of heaven, so to speak, right? <laughs> the laws of God, the things that he says are good and right, that are characteristic of of what will be our reality in heaven when we get there. It's because the flip side of this is that we are exiles in this world. First Peter 1 Peter 1-2, right? Exiles. We don't belong here, in other words. Are we acting like we belong here? Are we... So if... if we're just going along with with, with the grain of society and this world that is following after the prince of the power of the air, Satan, right? If we're following after Satan with the grain of this world, then there's a problem because we don't belong here. Therefore, we should not be uh, latching onto the values of this life in this world because this is not our home. This is not our home. We're also... Slaves of God. That's the language that Paul uses in Romans chapter 6. Slaves of God. That's strong terminology. Verse 22 of Romans chapter 6. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. You're slaves of God. So So we have been set free from sin, the shackles to sin, the dominion of sin is no longer our reality in Christ because we're united to him by faith. Okay. So what that means then is that we are bound to do the will of God, right? We, we see ourselves as slaves to do his will. And he is a good master. All that he commands is for our good. He's a good, good master. We can trust him. And so do we We see ourselves as bound to do the will of God, that true freedom from sin is not freedom to do whatever we please, but it's freedom to do whatever we ought, right? That's what the scriptures are clear about when it comes to who we are in Christ. Not free to do what we want, but free to do what we ought. And by the way, as you're conforming to the image of Christ, what we ought to do becomes increasingly what we want to do, right? As we grow into the image of Christ. Because uh, I, I think I think that's why in um, in John fifteen verse seven, whenever he says Christ is saying, "If my words abide in you and you abide in me, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you." I think the reason why we can ask whatever we want and it will be done for us is because if His words are abiding in us, then our prayers are going to be reflected uh, reflective of that reality, right? So we're praying that which has been informed by scripture. When the scriptures are in us and we're immersing ourselves in scripture, then of course we're going to be asking and praying for the things that delight God's heart because what's in us is his word, right? And so we're going to be praying according to his will. And that's why he says, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So as we are growing in Christ, we we have our heart. It becomes more and more like the heart of Christ and that comes out in our lives. Okay. Okay. Biblical remedies, be clear that identity and lifestyle go hand in hand. I taught on identity to our youth. We had a, a youth camp this summer at our church, and so we went out to a, a place in Glen Rose. And, and so I got to do the teaching out there. And so I taught four nights on identity and what God says about identity in Scripture because they're growing up in this world, right? They need, they need this. And so I was clear on this point: lifestyle and identity go hand in hand. And I used an illustration that I found uh, an article from 2012 that uh, said that Obi Wan Kenobi was arrested for a hit and run, and um, and it was also discovered after he was arrested that he had a uh, a record for petty theft. Okay. But come to find out, it was not that there's some kind of real multiverse where Obi-Wan Kenobi came into our world and started, you know, protecting. No, it was rather that a man won a $1,000 off a radio show if he was willing to change his name legally to Obi-Wan Kenobi. So he did. Um, But it wasn't like the new name changed his lifestyle, Right. He got a new name and all of a sudden he crafts his own lightsaber and starts to protect the galaxy. You know, it wasn't like that. So it's true that a name was given to him, but that's not his identity. That's not who he is. The name didn't lead to a lifestyle change, but when we're given an actual new identity by God, a lifestyle proceeds from it. A lifestyle proceeds from that new identity, right? It wasn't, the the man hadn't changed at all, just his name had changed. We have changed. Our identity is that we are new creatures in Christ. We have a new heart. We're sons and daughters. We're slaves of God. We're citizens of heaven. And our lifestyle should proceed from that, right? I'm almost out of time. So we're going to fly through this next part, okay? So how does your identity in Christ change your relationship to people, okay? enemies, in fact. Well, Matthew 5, 43 through 45 says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And by so doing, you'll be sons of your father who's in heaven. Why why would you be sons of your father who is in heaven if you're loving your enemies? Because he loves his enemies and he gives common grace, right? Makes the sun to shine on everyone, the rain to fall on everyone. And so if you love your enemies, you're going to be like God, right? Reflecting him in this world. What about other Christians? We're to love them. Look, I'll just I'll turn over to first John three, sixteen through eighteen. It says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth, right? We're to love and lay down our lives for the brethren. Why? Because Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And so our new identity informs our relationships with enemies, with other Christians, with unbelievers. We're to walk wisely before them, right? And our words are to be chosen specifically. Colossians 4, 5 through 6, they're to be seasoned with grace. And so wisdom and, and grace and the way that we speak to unbelievers, that's how we change our lifestyle based on our identity there. Family. And that whole section in Ephesians chapter five, verses twenty-two through six-four, husbands and wives, right? Um, parents and children, and even you get into the and uh, uh, in the household codes with regard to slaves, and you can make a, uh, make applications to employment there too. And so, but family is affected by who you are in Christ. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Wives are to submit to their husbands as unto Christ and children are to obey their parents in the Lord for this is right. Parents are not to provoke their children, right? And exasperate them in the way that they, they father them. So it changes our relationships to people, our relationships to our body. We already saw in first Corinthians six, 19 and 20, right? Um, if you, if you believe the gospel, if you're in Christ, then you, um, you don't belong to yourself. You're not your own. So glorify God with your body. Glorify him because you belong to him. So it affects the way you think about how to use your body. And that's very practical in our day and age. What about your affections? Luke chapter 7. You remember the story of the woman of the city who comes and begins to anoint Jesus' feet. He's there in the house of Simon the Pharisee and she comes in and she is anointing his feet and wiping wiping his feet with her with her hair it says that here verse 37 behold a woman of the city who was a sinner when she learned that he was reclining at table in the pharisee's house brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet weeping she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them would love him more? Simon answered him, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. And then he says later on, he says, you know, verse 46, you did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, verse 47, I tell you her sins, which are many are forgiven for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. So in other words, she had come to believe in Christ as savior. And the reason why she was there anointing his feet and crying and weeping over his feet was to honor him because she had understood that her sins, which are many, had been forgiven. And she's responding with this great affection for him, this great show of worship, because she realized what had been done for her by Christ, right? And so our new identity changes our affections, and they're Christ-centered affections now. And then our focus as well changes Luke 10, 38 through 40. You know, the story of the two sisters, Mary and Martha, right? Verse 39, Martha had this sister, Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So Mary had the, the right focus, right? her focus had changed because of um, what Christ had done for her and who he was for her. And so she's sitting at his feet, worshiping him, listening to him, receiving from him. And she had a focus that was new because of her identity. Well, that's it. And we've got about 12 minutes or so before we start back with the next topic. So let me close in prayer and you guys can have a small break. Father, thank you for this time. May it influence us and affect us so that you will be for us more important and others will become those who we help to turn from self to the Savior in new and fresh ways in every nook and cranny of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.